Mango Mustache Media. Hi-ho there, friends. Welcome to One Word Stories. You're back. You actually came back. You like me. You really like me. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to spend it with me and my beautiful guest, who you know whose name it is because you can read the front of that thing, but I'm not going to reveal it yet because theatrical effect. My name is Alex Schulte. I'm your host. This is One Word Stories, the show where we take one word and let it inspire the stories we tell. I have amazing guests on. We find out who they are now. We go back in their lives to find out how we got here. In the middle, we do have our Ginsburg True Love and Two Lies coming up, so stick around for that. And, of course, the LAS Plus exclusive post-show, exclusively, I'm being redundant, to LAS Plus subscribers. That voice you're hearing is producer Logan Schultz. What's up, Logan? (laughs) So exclusive. What up, bro? What up, bro? Well, if you want that exclusive content, you just got to subscribe. Yeah, like, it's got a, LAS Plus. LAS Plus. LAS Plus. Plus more t- showtime. Plus more exclusive. Um, Yeah, it's going to be really cool. I'm going to hang out with my unnamed guest for an extra 15, 20 minutes, and we're going to we're gonna chit-chat and maybe do some, some trivia based on what we're talking about today. So, oh, by the way, before I do introduce the guest, if you do want to to be a part of something really special i would love it love it love it if if you just gave this a look go to laspodcastnetwork.com slash plus p-l-u-s spell it out and consider subscribing to las plus it's it's our subscription service where you get um a lot of things and i'll tell you what they are in just a second here but but the biggest thing you really get out of this this investment is the fact that you are you can go back and say that you were a part of the first ever podcast network in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where local creators actually got paid for the content that they brought to the table. One of the greatest things about Cedar Rapids that I love so much is how many opportunities there are to be creative here. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of opportunities to to be um, rewarded monetarily, at least, with with that creative work. So that's something we're trying to do here at LAS. We want to pay these creators. And, and through a subscription, you're helping us do that. On top of that, you're getting bonus episodes of all of our shows, the LAS Plus exclusive show from One More Stories. You're getting ad-free episodes of all of our shows. Um, um, you're getting exclusive content as well as discounts at our live events, merch, and a lot more. It's really worth it. I love you, even if you don't go. I'll love you a little bit more if you do. So, without any further ado, my guest today is local playwright, local actor, local videographer, photographer, video game player, movie critic, music, definitely musical critic now, since... Cats came out. Um, let's see here. How else do I describe you? And um, doesn't seem to age. My guest today is Rob Merritt. He's also a husband and a cat daddy. What's up, Rob Merritt? 
How you doing, Alex? You know, there's one other thing I would include as like a descriptor of who I am, which is uh, I'm a good friend of yours because I realized you I've known you for a long time now. Yes, yes, and uh, intimately, you know. I, I well, we, I mean, not that intimately. Man, no, but, I mean intimately. <laughs> no, we do. We've we been... weren't going to talk about that, Alex. <laughs> I, it was alcohol involved, and we said that it didn't happen. <laughs> right, we're just moving on. Um, it, it, you and I have known each other for 15-ish years. It's been a long time. It's I, definitely been about 15, I think. I was, it's funny because I, I was thinking about this just a, like a couple of days ago. Um, I'm right now in the process of moving everything that was in my home office down into the basement because we're turning my home office into a nursery because we've got a baby on the way that's going to be here. Future dad, yeah, Rob yeah, Merritt. Less than, less than three months away. And so, oh my God, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, less than three months. Wow. And so, you know, trying Can't to, wait to meet him. Trying to clear space and, you know, get the nursery set up. And so I had to move all my stuff out. And one of the things that I had in my office was this big glass curio cabinet that I kept like all my weird theater, you know, mem- little mem- remembrances and, you know, th- like things I picked up over the, all these like weird little collectibles. Just anyway, a lot of weird stuff in there. And I had to move that out of the room too. And as I was doing it, I was like, wow. I remember the first time I ever moved this thing. It was when I picked it up when I had first gotten my house like a decade ago, <laughs> and I, uh, I, yeah. I bought this thing from somebody, and I had to go. I had to go get it, and I knew it was going to be too heavy for me to lift on my own. So I, and you and I were hanging out a lot around that time. Mm-hmm. You and me and Nathan Sheets, like we were constantly hanging out. And so I remember I, I reached out to you, and I was like, "Hey, Alex, what are you doing this afternoon? You want to come help me get this thing?" And so you helped me load this big cabinet into the back of a truck and we drove it home and you know there were lots of bumps along the way and we Uh get to my driveway and we go and like the entire glass front of it has fallen into like the bottom (laughs) and you like freaked out you're like it's broken oh my god and i i I was looking at it i was like no i think we i think it just came loose i think we could bolt it's a metaphor for my life (laughs) but i just i was like i i remember how much fun it was moving this thing with alex I i okay do not remember this but you were saying before you do remember like helping me move a lot of stuff of into course. my house. It's yeah. just so funny because I don't because yes, we spent so much time together a decade ago because I was going through a heartbreak. Uh, Nathan was going through a heartbreak, and you were going through a breakup. But yeah, not necessarily it was a, a it was a weird summer of romantic drama for the three of us, and so we were sort of like like you know we all sort of bonded over our our heartbreak and right. There were a, there were a lot of a lot of nights of remember I think the the Star Wars original trilogy had come out on. Blu-ray that summer, and we all like got together and oh, watched it to see all the you know. Yeah, I we remember that. We hung out a lot. Yeah. Yes, you were okay. Ugh, there's so many things that that I know here, and I'm trying to make sure that everyone that has zero context here is right along with us. So before we go down that path. Can we get a little bit of context of who you are right now? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mentioned I'm, I'm a soon-to-be dad. Uh, I, I currently work for NuboCo as uh, the communications director. I get to work with startups, and, you know, and I get to tell a lot of really cool stories about everything from our coding classes to, uh, to oh people starting businesses to... Uh, to our education program. I mean, we do really, really cool things at Nubico. And so when you get to be the communications director for an organization like that, it means that every week you're out there telling the story of these people and what they do. And 
you know, that's a difficult job to do if you don't believe in the mission that of uh-huh. the organization you're working for. And I have been in that situation before. But it, this one, I love this place and I love what we do. And it feels really good to be telling the stories of these people that are making such a huge impact in our community. You know, and you are one of the great storytellers of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, in the history of our time, I think. I know you're going to take that as too high of praise because you're so modest, but that brings me to our word of the day. Al Bedker? Today's word is... Storytelling. So, yeah. Where's Al? I didn't know he was here. Is he under the table? He's under the table. Yeah, yeah. You can come out later, Al. Um, Al Betker, thank you for voicing that. Uh, Also a a local treasure. Best voice in town, arguably. Um, Besides me. Hi. So anyway, uh, uh, yes, you are a master at your craft of storytelling. You, you tell stories in our community from, from community members, but you also tell stories of things that have never happened and that are just from the, the ethos of Rob Merritt's brain. You know, uh, where I, I want to get back to where that started, but let's, I, I do want to hear more about the stories you're telling right now as um, someone who's working with one of the biggest local businesses in Cedar Rapids, Nuboco. Yeah, we are doing a lot with video. Uh, Actually, the funny thing is that Nubico is going to be starting uh, an innovation podcast working with LAS, which we're really excited about. And and part of that is because we are constantly looking for new avenues, new places where we can get the word out about what we do. I mean, one of the biggest things that we run into is that a lot of people still don't even know what Nubico is. You yeah, know, you'll they, say that name and they'll be like, "Oh, you work for the market?" And it's like, "No, no, no, it's a right. different it's a different thing." Um, I didn't even of, know until very recently either, to yeah. be honest. I thought I thought they were I knew they were different, but I thought they were under the same umbrella. Yeah, no, we're a completely different thing it, and and it's really making a great impact on the community because we're everything from people who are trying to figure out a new career are they can they can go into coding through Delta V and go through a boot camp and uh, and be ready in an in demand career like five months later as opposed to like a four year program mm-hmm. or oh, people sweet. who are people who are starting a new business we have an accelerator that helps them with that we have our our programs are out in K twelve schools throughout the state helping kids get up to speed on coding programs we work with code.org to do that because. That's going to be, I mean, already most jobs involve working with computers. And Mm -hmm. if you think about the kids that are in elementary school, junior high, high school now, by the time they're out in the workforce, there's just going to be even more of a need for that. And so getting, getting kids up to speed on computer science early rather than waiting until they're out working you know, you're just basically giving them a head start, giving them a better shot at a career. So, sure. you know, there's just all of these things that Nubico is doing to try and make our state more competitive with where things are going technologically, making sure that we have a workforce that can staff those kinds of Got things. It. There's a lot of businesses out there that are startups and then they get to a certain point and they leave Iowa because they can't grow anymore here. There aren't the people to hire. There isn't the infrastructure. They have to go to a bigger market in order for their business to take the next step. And so Eric Engelman, who uh, who founded Nuboco, his whole thinking was, we have to do everything that we can to support the business community here 
whether it's training workforce so that they can do these kinds of jobs, helping businesses to start up, um, you know, our Entrepreneur Academy. There's just all these things that are specifically designed to make our state a better place to work. For the community, by the community. Yeah. And, right. And so there's so many really cool stories that come out of that. Individual stories. Uh, there are, are, you know, somebody who shifts their career and goes into coding, um, that you know those those stories are really fun to tell and it's it's just it's a great it's a great place to be um and you feel like the people that you're profiling are actively making an impact on our community and that's really cool dude that's so cool and and honestly i feel like you are exactly the person that needs to be in that position and you know people think like how lucky are you to get that job but honestly and i don't mean to blow smoke how lucky are they to have you helping them with their production and the stories that they want to tell? Because literally, like I said, you're one of the great storytellers of, of, our, of our community and of our time. Um, you are the author of, of um, The Summerland Project, which ended up being a movie, Amelia 2.0, if anybody wants to go and watch that. And it's my favorite play of all time. Oh, wow, really? I told you that 10 years ago, and I still mean it today. I figured, yeah, I mean, I remember 10 years ago, but I figured you would have seen some more stuff since then. That was the last play I saw. <laughs> well, that, that explains a lot that's not, right there. That's not true. Well, but, you, you and, directed uh, a scene from Summerland Project for a high school speech. I did. I did. How did I forget that until you said that? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so... um. Angela Billman, who is the voice of LAS, LAS, she played the lead in your music, not a musical, in your play, The Summerland Project, which yes. I saw first in the black box, and then I saw it on the main stage right here where we're recording this at Theater Cedar Rapids, and um, it was fantastic. It was wonderful. The acting was great. The the, the beats were incredible. Um the music helped it so much. There was that that song that the husband plays on the boombox at her hospital bedside when she's in a coma. It's just so powerful. And then in her mind, they dance together. Ah, I without giving away the whole show, I guess. You know, you bring up something that music is such a huge part. I think of storytelling. Um, whenever I'm putting Agreed. together videos, uh, or you know, in Summerland Project, I knew it was really important that uh, that these two characters kind of had a, a song. That then, when it gets used later in the show, bum, has this emotional bum, impact. Bum, bum, um, bum. Right? What's the song? Uh, it's a, it's a satie song. Uh, I started just. I, it yeah, that like was that. it. That was right. But dun, 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 yeah, um, I, I almost went always sunny in Philadelphia. Definitely not that one. Definitely not that. Um, one. Yeah, I, I mean, like. It's it's really if you know how to use music, it makes a story really have impact, and you can you can see it when a film is has a really powerful musical score to it, or um, Quentin Tarantino was a genius about knowing exactly what song to play mm -hmm. at what time in a movie to make it have way more impact. And this is great. So so yeah. like because there's we are so limited as storytellers. This isn't actually happening. We have to fake this retelling of a story of a, of a play or we have to make it up you know there's these disadvantages in in portraying that to an audience and i think things like music are the kind of weapons we need to to fight that disconnect to paint that picture it's a good color for the painting is a metaphor i use literally every day here uh in in podcasts we're painting a picture the colors they've taken away are the visuals. So nobody can see how I'm waving my hands in the air mm -hmm. while I say this to you. Um, but but hopefully through description, for one, um, 
inflection on our voices and a little help from music, mm-hmm. we can we can tell the story of well, what you this guys, moment is right now. You guys use it on the the Dungeons and Dragons podcast where you'll yeah. have like a song suddenly come in and like the mood of the room change. You know, it's right. it's almost influenced. Oh, this is a dramatic moment, right? You know, and, and in sometimes, case you didn't catch it, yeah. it's sad now. And sometimes you guys do that like tongue in cheek, like ha ha. But but there are other times where it's like, no, that music is actually serving a purpose right now. It is mm-hmm. setting a stage that otherwise would be harder to create in yeah. an audio only setting where you can't see anything. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's so many there's so many tools that we can use to, to better our storytelling. So um, you're you're the new Boco, You're at Nuboco now, mm-hmm. but we're jumping in our time machine. We're going back a little bit, and this is kind of a two part question because I think they go in hand. Sure. Number one, how'd you begin at Nubo? And number two, maybe more importantly, how was your pandemic? Wow. And I know we're still like kind of, we're still in it. Yeah. You know, the, the, this, this new variant is back and people are getting COVID left and right, you know, more than they have been in these past few months again. And, and, uh, but 2020 pandemic, we're all, we're all at home. Yeah. Um, well, for what happened to Rob Merritt? I'm very lucky in that, I mean, Nubico was a place that my job transferred to being, you know, doing it from home very easily. You know, so much of what I do is contacting media or creating videos or, you know, things of that nature that I can do at home just as easily as at like the office. And so, so for me, I was a lot luckier than a lot of other people, people who worked in the service industry or people who worked in the arts who, for a while there could not work at all because everything was closed. And then once it did finally fire up, you know, they're, they're constantly having to go into work and deal with that danger of, you know, are, are the people that are coming in, are they vaccinated? Are they masked? Am I going to get sick? Right, you know, right, it's right. A con- so I, I actually feel very, very lucky that I have been able to mostly avoid that, you know, except when I have to go out and, you know, go grocery shopping or whatever. Yeah. Otherwise I, I've been able to stay relatively safe and, and I've been lucky in that, you know, so far, and I'm knocking on this desk. I have not had COVID <laughs> yet, so that's a great thing. Same, and I don't know how. But uh, but I will. How lucky are we? You you bring up something that was a actually a really good exercise in storytelling for me, which was that not long after the pandemic began, you know, I I do a lot of work in making videos, not just for my job with Nubico, but like freelance, I do a lot of stuff and, and I, I work with a lot of filmmakers in the state and we make like short films, things like that. And there was a, you know, and, and once the pandemic began and everybody was stuck at home, nobody could really make movies anymore. There was nothing right. you could do. And <laughs> right. so there was a, there's a Facebook page called Iowa Film and one of the members on there decided to do a, a contest, and it was the Iowa Film Cell Phone Movie Challenge, which was, okay, we're all stuck at home and we can't go anywhere, so uh, every week we're going to have a contest, make a movie where everything has to be shot on your phone. You can't use, if you, even if you own like a big fancy camera, you can't use it. You have to use a phone, and... Uh, and you can only use as cast and crew members people who live in your house with you. Nobody can come over to help you out. <laughs> Although you can, if you record someone virtually, you can use their stuff and add it in. But you can't go anywhere. You can't like you know have other people come over to help. They were trying not to promote um, people getting together, of course. Right. Yeah. And, and it was like here's a, you know let's let's try to stay creative and keep you know producing stuff even if we can't get together. I decided to make a parody of We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel uh, mm-hmm. called This Year is a Dumpster Fire. This Year is a Dumpster Fire. Yeah. And, you know, and it's the same thing. You know, I had to film it all at home. And, you know, and, uh, and those two videos 
uh, have gotten so many views online. It's crazy, and it it, it's it's weird to think that like these were things that I did as an afterthought because hey, you know, we can't do anything. I'm stuck at home, and I mean that's a really but but both of them resonated with people, and I think that as a storyteller, that's a really really important thing that I've always tried to remember with anything that I do is why are you telling this story? Who is it going to resonate with? Does it matter to anyone? And if the story doesn't matter to anybody, I, you know, I, I tend to not really want to do it. But if I'm like, hey, no, this this will people will really like this story. It, 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 this speaks to this thing that everybody's and you know, both of these videos spoke to the ridiculousness of the pandemic and people needing to laugh a little bit in the course of all of the awfulness. Which and, you absolutely provided. And as long as I had that, it didn't matter that I was shooting it on a phone. So this it is the question worked. then. Were, were you actively taking the time and thinking, what? why do people need to hear this story? Um, what is coming out of this? Or were you just kind of going with your instincts and having fun? The second one. I mean, I wasn't sitting there going, I think the world needs a time travel comedy. I mean, it was, it was more just like, I was like, I don't know, what am I going to make for a movie and that would be funny? I think you know, that's this the best would content. Be funny. Yeah. I think that's the best content when you're like, what's going to make me laugh? Mm -hmm. And then that makes everybody else laugh. Instead of thinking, what's how do I solve this math equation of making people laugh? Yeah. I mean, it's not It's, it's, not it's tricky because, you know, to clarify it's what feel. I said before, you don't want to do a thing where everything that you do is calculated for maximum views because then you're not producing stuff that feels authentic. Authentic. You're you come just, off as inauthentic. Yeah, you're just, just going. You're just going for numbers, and and you're playing to the masses. And so that's not what I mean at all. It's more. Uh, it's more. Why would this be fun to do? Why do I want to do this? Um, and and how do I convey why this is fun for me, or this is interesting for me to everyone else? Uh, I, th I think that's the that's such an important part of storytelling is that you that's realize so what's what's the hook that's important to me? Why did I latch onto this? Okay, now how do I translate that for other people to make them enjoy this the same way that I did? I I've always taken a lot of inspiration from Trey Parker and Matt Stone, and they talk about how one of the biggest and for those that don't know, who's that? Uh, the guys that have made South Park and Book of Mormon and Orgasmo and uh, all the other hilarious <laughs> Team stuff America. out there. Team America. Um, you know, they, Trey Parker has often talked about he and Matt try to crack each other up. And the yes. stuff that makes them laugh uh, is what they do. That, uh, you know, if, if they propose something for South Park and, like, Trey throws something out there and Matt's like, no, that's stupid, then they don't do it. But if Matt cracks up, then like we got something. Yep. yep. Um, so I love watching their um, their voiceover recordings too, where they're just cracking each other up. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. Bill Hader shows up mm -hmm. and and does some, <laughs> and they're just laughing like seriously. No, I don't know if anybody has a more contagious laugh than Bill Hader. Yeah. For one. <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, those guys are brilliant, and and that's the thing. Mm -hmm. They're doing it to make themselves happy. They're not saying which joke is going to make me the most money. Right, right. That's that can't that can't ever be the question. No, and in fact, I mean, and that's just it. The stuff that I was making during the pandemic, I wasn't making any money for that. Like that was just me being, you know, a moron. And but it was, but it it was fun, and it was a delightful surprise that they wound up resonating with people as much as they did. So you you do have you do tell stories outward mm -hmm. um, beautifully. You tell stories about other things that happened that aren't about Rob Merritt. But I would like to point out at the same time you beautifully tell your own story through social media and you portray a lot of yourself in in what you make and what you post. Oh yeah. So and there's a specific post that actually jumped out to me very recently that you made and it was so Rob and I loved it so much because I love you so much. So it was hey everybody um I'm going to paraphrase the 
fuck out of this. But uh, hey, everybody, Rob here, and uh, I don't th- I don't know if you actually start your Facebook statuses like that, but I'm assuming <laughs> I'm going to now. Yeah, right. Hey, everybody, Rob here. Um, but it was something about last year. I had a lot of fame, uh, or I I saw a lot of attention or something based on negativity, making fun of Cats, mm-hmm. the musical, or talking about how the year was a dumpster fire. And while these things were comical, you were saying that you want to focus more on a positive spin on things. And I don't think anybody looked at the the art, let's call it, it is that, you created in 2020 slash 21, that was like, oh, what a dick that Rob, he just points out all the bad stuff. It was it was very much, this is how we're feeling in the time, and, and you were portraying that back at us. You were putting up that mirror, and we're like, yeah, we all hate it too. This is this is how I'm feeling. You're, I think it's so admirable for you to take a hard look in the mirror, harder than anybody's looking at you, and say, "I want to be more positive in 2022 with my storytelling." Well, yeah, and let me let me clarify what I meant by that too. It's that, you know, I I've always enjoyed, um, you know, talking about movies, talking about music, and you know, and with my friends, we'll get you know, we'll get savage. We'll be like, "Oh, did you see this thing?" You know, and uh, it's the whole reason I watched The Bachelor. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's to talk shit. But um, you know, something that I've noticed happens online, and it and it it's been bothering me more and more, is that somebody will post about how they saw a, a show that they really liked, or they went to a movie that they were really into, and and then you start seeing these people commenting on their post, going, "Yeah, but that movie is is garbage because this or that," and you start after a while, it's like. All these people are trying to shame this person for liking. liking what they like. Yeah. And and what's worse, I mean, it's it's one thing when it's internet strangers, mm-hmm. but it's another thing when it's people like on your Facebook friends list, people who yes. supposedly are your friends, who are trying to make you feel bad because you like this artist or you liked that movie. And I've seen, God, I've seen so many terrible, terrible movies. And I've, but I have friends who love them and I am like, I don't want to. I don't want to. That's so thoughtful of you. I, I, but I, I don't. I, I don't think you were too out of place by calling out cats. No, no. I Cat, watched I mean, cats. The first fourth of cats. I will say this though about my 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 cats review. You know, I made fun of it. I had, and I had a good time making fun of it. But I also I I'm even back then. I put a note at the end where I applauded the filmmakers for having the sheer guts to make something that was so balls to the wall crazy. I was like, it takes, you know, th- th- I, I applaud them for having an in- having a thought and yeah. going Everybody with it. Everybody complains about how Hollywood doesn't take any risks anymore. But uh, take a look at cats. And anyway, but I guess I guess it was also like, you know, some of the observations that were in that review. I, I was like, hey, this is this is still funny and it's still true. <laughs> but, you know, but there were like some cheap shots at James Corden. And I was like, did I really need to say that? I Apparently, mean, I heard he's a dick. I have I have heard. But, Every yeah. Reddit thread about what celebrity is a dick mm. in real life, James Corden is always at the top of the list. But you know, but even that one, it's like I, you know, you and me can shoot the shit about that. But uh, you know, right? But there's going to be that person out there who tunes into James Corden every night and loves him, right? And you know, yes. I don't want to, I don't want to shit on that. For the record, I do like his show. I like the carpool karaoke. His Paul, his his carpool karaoke with Paul McCartney was, was amazing. Was I? That's what I was just going to say. That was one of the yeah. best moments in TV. Period. Mm-hmm. 
when Paul McCartney is a, is a karaoke machine at a bar. Can yes. you imagine? <laughs> uh, I like I cried while watching it. I remember it was so powerful. But but that I guess that's kind of what I was trying to say was that you know it it takes and and I think yeah. it was also James. I got something I want to say too. This is great. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just James Gunn said something about this also uh, because he was uh, he you know somebody was asking him on Twitter um, you know how he felt about. Uh, I can't remember if they were asking him about how he felt about the original Suicide Squad movie or, or oh, if it was right. something else. But he, but he basically just... redo. Right. And he basically just said, you know, I've got my feelings on movies, but at the same time, as a movie maker, I know how insanely hard it is to make a movie. And if you just get something made, that's a huge accomplishment. And so I have my opinions, and I'll share my opinions with my friends, but I'm not going to publicly slag any other filmmaker because I know how hard it is to do what they do. And the last thing you want to do after putting in that kind of work is to see, like, a colleague... Uh, take a giant shit on you, right? Like publicly, right? You know, it, it's like it doesn't mean oh you have to like everything that comes out, and I certainly don't, right? But it, but uh, but there's something to, you know, you're you're an artist, I'm an artist. We both are constantly out in the community doing. Well, you're producing podcast shows. We've both been mm-hmm. in theater shows together, mm-hmm. and it, I, I've put out some really bad content and, for oh, the record. So have I. Uh, you know? I have put out some terrible stuff. I'm fully aware, but but think but about you have to. But but at the same time, think about when you have like when you've put out something that you're proud of and you've invested your heart and and you and you're kind of putting yourself out there and yeah. being vulnerable to make a piece mm-hmm. of art that you think is good, and then you hear somebody say, oh, "Yeah, I saw that. I saw that Alter Boys show, and Alex Schulte <laughs> just ruined it. He was so terrible. Uh. Like you'd be like, what the." F- that's an old reference. What is wrong with you? Why would you say you know, like you? It, it hurts. It hurts to hear that, and I don't want to do that to anybody except I, you with except, Alter Boys, right? With when I was in Alter Boys, that was bad. <laughs> um, so actually, that that reminds me of, of a of a rule that I've been living by that has helped me for like the last two years now. You don't yuck someone else's yum, right? Yeah. And what that means, you know, is if you ever hear someone saying, "I like this thing. This thing makes me happy." Never. The, the, some of the worst things you can ever do is make someone feel bad about something that makes them happy. Right. Taking away from somebody something a little bit of something that makes them happy. I love Halo. Halo's dumb, and anybody that likes it's dumb. Oh, well. And then next time I'm playing Halo, I'm going to think about that person saying that. Yeah. And that takes away a bit of the happiness from what I'm doing. And how dare I steal that from anyone? And it's, and and it's I, me. I, I used to yeah. be so adamant on being like, Oh, I'm not gonna let anybody say it. But I, I gotta tell you, sorry, mm-hmm. but that's that's not a good show. And I think that there's no point. No, there's no point. And it's made worse when it's done by your friends. Yes, you know it, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I still to this day, I, there's a movie I love, uh, AI. It's a, it's a Spielberg movie. Why I, the heck? I just googled that movie yesterday. Yeah. This is so weird. I love nobody's, that movie so much. Nobody's streaming it. And uh, really. Oh. I can't find it anywhere. Oh, dude, I'll lend you. I've got like two copies of it. I'll lend of you. Of course one. you do. Uh, I don't but, want uh, copies. I want digital. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, I I remember that a good friend of mine. I I told him, oh, you know, AI is like like it's my favorite, and my friend proceeded to rip the movie apart mm. and not just say, oh, you know, th- that movie sucks, but like to systematically go through it and talk about all these stupid things in it and how can you like that movie? How can you think this is okay? And that this scene, like, and then there's this part and this is just stupid and then the ending. And, w- and 
I'm sitting here like, you know, and I'm defending this thing that I love, but at the same time, I'm also like, why? Like it's, it, it was getting genuinely upsetting to yeah, me yeah. because I'm like, you're my friend. And I just told you, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. You know, and I realized that some friends, their, you know, their, their friendship is built on giving each other crap. And I get that. But this way, it just felt mean. And yeah. I, and, and I was like, I don't want to do that to anybody. And I think that's great of you. You know, you're an empathetic person and you see that kind of stuff. And I agree. I agree. Cause it, people are going to remember that. And then it takes away a little bit of that happiness. Mm. Um, so I hate it if I feel like we're cutting off our conversation right now, but we're about to go to break in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to play a game with you. Okay. And it's not like a saw game. I'm not going to put you say, in. I say, am I going to wake up with like something on my head? There's not going to be a, a key in your eyeball that you have to dig out to get out of the. Thank you. The, the self, the head containing. Because that was really unpleasant the last time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I had to have you back so I could so I could tell you that that's not <laughs> usually what we do. So, I'm going to play with my friend Rob Merritt. True Love and Two Lies, presented by Ginsburg Jewelers. All right. True love, baby, and true lies. Rob, this is how the game's going to go. By the way, the wedding singer dance moves that you got going on right now, brilliant. You are the wedding singer after all. But you got to use music to tell that story because no one can see it. You do, yes. He's he's fist bumping back and forth. Looks very white. Um, anyway, <laughs> we are. I'm going to give you three stories. One of them's true. They're all proposal stories on people falling in love. And all I need for you to do is guess which one is true. Okay. At the end of this, I'm going to reveal to you which story is true by playing the audio of the storyteller themselves. Um, so, without any further ado, are you ready? I'm ready. Perfect. Before we get started, actually, I would like to tell everyone, go check out Ginsburg Jewelers. You have to go see them on the col- on the corner of Collins Road and First Avenue, right across the street from Best Buy over there, in the same parking lot as Poncheros. Go and check out Steve at Ginsburg Jewelers and his amazing staff, and let them know that the LAS Podcast Network sent you, or One Word Stories, they're going to give you 10% off of your order. I, right? bought, I bought my wife's wedding ring at Ginsburg Jewelers. Did you actually? I did. So it's funny that we're playing this game because you actually were the reveal story a couple episodes ago. I was. On the Gina interview. <laughs> yeah. Was, that was your story with the ring pop. And she said, I quote, that's too clever. No man is that smart. Or something like that. I, I am I don't so think she, happy to have disappointed her. I, I don't one. think she downed all men as badly as <laughs> I just said she did. She's, she's pretty woke. But um, okay. Story. Numero uno. So our love story started the same way most love stories do, and that's in sweatpants at a karaoke bar. There's a local dive bar that does karaoke on Fridays and Sundays, and you could find me at my friend and my friends there at least one Friday a month. It was never a place where I thought I would meet my future wife, but hey, weirder things have happened. We met while talking about how much we love the song choice she made. Yes, I made the first move. It was one last time from Hamilton. So years later, when Hamilton finally came out on Disney+, Plus, our friends and us threw a Hamilton watch party. We were watching the show, and right before the song One Last Time came on, I slipped out of the room, put on my George Washington costume to be back for the song. I came around the corner, all dressed up, everyone was laughing, and my girlfriend had no idea what was about to happen. She thought I was just being weird as usual, but at the end of the song, at the perfect moment, I dropped my knee, Asked her 
if she'd be my right-hand woman, and we got married the, this past June 2021. That's story number one. Okay. I want that story to be true. Like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I love that story so much that if it turns out that that is not true, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> well, I don't know. We're going to have to get these other two. So you're hoping that's the real one. And so far, yes. But you've got two left. Now, okay. just wait. So it's it's two that are true and one that's false or one that's the true opposite. and two that are false? One is true. Okay. Two are false. All right. Well, the first one is my front runner, but in, in uh, fairness, I haven't heard the other two yet. First out of, first out of one place. <laughs> All right. Story number two. So I didn't know at the time, but my boyfriend at the time had planned a proposal by Moonlight after a night out with our friends. But apparently, I was in a real crabby mood, so he shifted gears. Now, there's a little backstory. He would always bring me an order of Dunkin' Donuts before work to share with my four-year-old son. So as you can imagine, the ring was burning a hole in his pocket. So the next morning, he surprised both of us with not only a box of donuts, but on top, my favorite was a gorgeous diamond ring. And here's the cutest part. On my son's donut, he put a tiny little gold engagement band for him too. A little side story, my son had been waiting for a monarch butterfly to emerge from a chrysalis. And that very morning while we were eating the donuts, you guessed it, the butterfly made its entrance. When I asked my son if he wanted to call grandma to tell her the good news, he just shouted, the butterfly's out. And it certainly was in more ways than one. That's story number two. Okay. What are you thinking? Where are you at right now? Hmm. The practical side of me says that story. Uh, let me hear. Let me hear story number three. <laughs> I reserve all judgment. I plead the fifth. All right. Here's number three. So I have a horror story that actually ended up being beautiful. My then girlfriend and I were visiting Cancun, Mexico for our three year anniversary. And it's weird you asked me to do this because I actually got my wedding ring from Steve at Ginsburg Jewelers. Anyway, my girlfriend always loved fireworks, and there was a fireworks show every night at the resort we were staying at. I knew she would think I was going to propose during the fireworks, so that's exactly why I couldn't. After the fireworks, she literally said, that would have been a great time to propose. I said, wouldn't that be nice? So the next day we went scuba diving. This is how I wanted to propose. I wanted to have an incredible day on the water, and I wanted to make sure I got back to the boat before she did, so when she emerged out of the water, I would be waiting there with a the ring, and the guide was ready with a camera to capture the moment. Well, everything went perfectly to, to plan until it didn't. I got back to the boat first. She emerges from the water to see me sitting there with the case open, asking her to marry me. She said yes. I'm still not sure if she was crying because her face was so wet, but as I put the ring on her finger, Yep, we dropped the ring into the water. I immediately thought, why did I think this was a good idea? But here's the good part. We almost instinctively got back into the water, oxygen takes on our back. I immediately thought, uh, sorry, uh, oxygen takes on our back and started looking. Luckily, the water was so clear and she was actually the one that found it. When she brought it to me, it was like I was being proposed to back. We've been married for four years and for anyone that hears this, don't propose on a boat. Okay, so uh, I didn't believe the second one at all. Um, the first one, I really want to believe it because I it makes me happy. But I'm thinking the third one is the true one. 
maybe that's because I also proposed to my wife while on a tropical vacation, and so I'm relating to it. I don't know, but I'm mm. going to throw in for number three. You did the true one. You did propose to your 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 girlfriend at the time, now wife Megan, with a ring pop. I did, I did, and, and then when she wanted a second one, you handed her a wedding ring. I did, and or but you, and I was similarly stupid because I was on a beach, and if I had dropped it, you know. Off it would have gone into the that's, surf. That's why you see all the metal detectors out there, man. I mean, we were sta- we were sitting on a on a log that water was like you know coming up to it and hitting our feet. So if I had dropped the ring, that would have been bad. Well, so is it story number one, the sweatpants at the karaoke bar? Is it story number two, the donuts and the butterfly, or so- story number three, water uh, scuba diving proposal? I'm gonna selfishly guess that number three is the true one. Well, let's find out. Okay, so I didn't find this out until after the fact, but Steve had planned on proposing by moonlight one night after we went out for dinner with friends. But apparently I was in a really crabby mood, so he shifted gears. Now here's a little backstory. Prior to getting married, Steve and I had a weekly ritual where he would bring Donutland donuts over in the morning before work. I should have known. Four year old son Jackson and I. <laughs> so as you can imagine, the ring was burning a hole in his pocket. So the next morning, he surprised the two of us not only with a box of donuts, but atop my favorite was a gorgeous diamond ring. And this is the sweetest part. On Jackson's sprinkle donut, he placed a tiny little gold engagement band for Jackson, too. A fun side story. At that time, little Jackson had been eagerly awaiting a monarch butterfly to emerge from a chrysalis. And that very morning, while we were eating the donuts, you guessed it. The butterfly made its entrance. When I asked Jack if he would like to call Grammy and tell her the big news, instead of telling her that Steve and I were engaged, he just shouted, The butterfly is out! And it certainly was, in more ways than one. That was Megan Ginsburg, wasn't it? That was Megan Ginsburg. So not only was I Who wrong, was married to Steve but Ginsburg. I got the Steve Ginsburg story wrong. <laughs> wow. Steve Ginsburg. Wow. That is Steve Ginsburg's I, proposal story I, of Ginsburg know, Jewelers. That, there, so there's a, that's a rule I should have remembered, which is the one that sounds the most implausible is probably the true one. <laughs> because I was like, yeah, right. The really? butterfly happened the... to hatch at the exact same time. Sure it yeah. did. Yeah. I mean, so talk about good storytellers. Megan freaking Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, when she sent me that audio, I was like, this is just sculpted beautifully, Megan. Oh my God. Oh, so, yeah. first off, if you're listening to this, Megan and Steve, thank you so much for that dope ass story. Oh, it's awesome. Making this so good. It's and, so awesome that I didn't believe it for a second because I was like, no way. Yeah. No yeah, way. I love that you were immediately like, nah, for, first like, off, I, story number two. The other two, the other two sound like they might have happened. This one, uh uh-uh. uh. No, I wrote the other two. Um, Rob, thanks so much for playing True Love and Two Lies, and thank you to Ginsburg Jewelers for sponsoring this beautiful segment, True Love and Two Lies with Ginsburg Jewelers. Remember, go and give them a a visit over on the corner of Collins Road and First Ave. Tell them that I sent you at One Word Stories or the LAS Podcast Network. They're going to give you 10% off your next order, which is a big chunk of change. Rob, we're going to take a couple-minute break. We're going to come back. We're going to finish off your story. I want to get back to the beginning, find out how we got here, okay? Thanks, everybody, for listening to One Word Story. Stick around for just a couple minutes. We'll be right back. Hey, 
Oh, I just fell out of the sky into this seat. What just happened? What year is it? Oh, I'm sitting across the table from my good friend Rob Merritt. Logan Schultz on the mic outside <laughs> who was screaming with me. He's still falling. Um, you'll land at one point, I promise. So, one word stories. We're, we're, we're back. He's gone. He's uh, he's definitely done. Um, so, Rob Merritt is here. Storytelling extraordinaire. Great friend. Actually, really quick. Can I, can I talk about how great of a friend you are? I mean, it's your show, man. <laughs> so, I just want to point out really quick how special I find our friendship to be and, and how, how maybe why I get so excited every time I see you, which I do, um, is because there was a time in my life where I was rock fucking bottom. All right. I was 19, 20 years old, not 1,920, but 19 or 20 years old. And I had just gone through a breakup and I lost my mind. I like literally went crazy. And there were like, uh, there was a handful of people, maybe five people that just had my back and were there and showed up. And you were one of those five people. And actually you were, you were one of the main people in my life. And back in 2011 that, um, that helped. And I talk about moving to Chicago all the time. I didn't want to move to Chicago until you took me there for a weekend to see your friend Mary Kay Fonz in a show with her theater company, Barrel of Monkeys. It was a wonderful weekend. I was like, okay, I love this city. This is where I'm going. And then uh, just six months later, I, I a couple months later, I quit my job at Best Buy. And then I moved out to Chicago and... It's been a roller coaster ever since. It really has. Yeah, I felt kind of guilty at the time because I remember you made the decision. I mean, I think you made the decision to move to Chicago as we were driving back. Yes. From that trip. And, yes, I did. Uh, and I on, did. on one hand, I felt sad both, you know, to see you go as a friend. And I felt like, oh, I just caused Alex Schulte to bail on Cedar Rapids. That's a that's a loss. But um, <laughs> no. but but, you know, but you also People I think have to do that. We, you do. You know? I mean, I think that you grew a lot while you were in Chicago. And, and I visited you a few times. I remember mm-hmm. uh, me and, and Tim and Jordan, a bunch of people. We came down for Lollapalooza. Yeah, Tim, Tim and Jordan Arnold. Mm hmm. Great and, uh, people. Yeah, and, and and I remember like you seemed to be having a really really good time in the city, and you were you know you were you were having some great stories every time you'd come back to town, and and it felt like when you finally did come back to Cedar Rapids, it's like you came back on your terms. Like okay, yeah. you know I got what I needed out of Chicago, and now I'm ready for the next stage of my life. Thank you for seeing that. It did feel like that. You know, I had found love, which I really wanted in my life. I had found. Um, um, well, see, you know, it, it's thing. It's that's the weird thing is that when I did move back, I definitely wasn't entirely coming back on my own terms. Hannah, my my partner, and I decided that we were going to move back for a few months, and then we we either would move back to Chicago when we had a little bit more money saved up because we were both um, pretty poor, and or to St. Louis. We'd never planned to stay in Cedar Rapids, but then opportunity after opportunity, I'm here, and. Oh my God, it's what a what a treat. I feel so lucky. Yeah, no, my story was similar. I, I left Iowa for New York and I lived there for a while and I I would have stayed in New York longer, but the opportunity to come back and be arts and entertainment editor for the Gazette mm-hmm. presented itself. And that was a job that uh, growing up in Cedar Rapids, I'd always wanted to do. And I even remember saying, I was like, you know what? If I get it, I'll move back. And if, if it's not really my thing, I'll just go back to New York. Mm-hmm. And I, so I came back from New York 
uh, in like 2005. And I've been here ever since. And I have no, I mean, I've thought sometimes about, gosh, what would my life have been like if I'd stayed in New York? It would have been different. I don't know if it would have been better. It just would have been different. But I, you know, by coming back to Iowa, I've had so many fantastic creative opportunities. Uh, I've met my wife. Mm-hmm. I am in a really good place right now. And so, you know. You I, seem happier than you've ever been. Yeah. I, I think, though, that, that it is good. Not so, that you ever seem sad by any means. I, I'm, I am in a good place. And I think that, you know, your, your journey in your life gets you to that point. And I do think it's good to leave for a while, to go see what it's like somewhere else. And some people leave and discover, hey, you know what? I like it better out there. And they, you know, I have friends who left Iowa 20 years ago for some, for Texas or for California, and they're still there. They're happy. And I have other friends who they leave and, you know, they're gone for a while. And then at some point they come back when time is right. And when people come back from something like that, it, it's not a failure, it's Mm-mm, no, it's, uh, it's and you know, it certainly did feel like that for me when I came back. I there, I think there are some people who don't ever leave, and so if somebody else leaves and then comes back, they'll be like, oh well, I guess Mr. Big City couldn't make it and had to come back, sure, huh? Sure, yeah. And you just look at those people <laughs> and like, hey, you know what? When's the last time you tried? Right, took a risk. Yeah, you know, I I think that takes I think a lot of courage. It does, it does, and it also takes a lot of courage. To to be in tune enough with what you need as a person to say, you know what, I really wanted to come to this larger place, and I've been here for a while, and I've really enjoyed my experience, but I'm ready now to go back home on, on my terms and, and pursue what I want to do. And, you know, I, I've gotten so many great opportunities in Iowa. I, I don't... Yes. I, I, like I said, I often think about well, what would life have been like if I'd stayed in New York, and it would have been different. But I don't regret having come back because I'm thrilled with the opportunities I've had here, and I feel like this has been a really good place for me. It certainly would have been different. Who knows what the path have been? You yeah. might be a Broadway writer now. You know that's absolutely a possibility. You have the talent and uh, drive to be something like that. But absolutely, nothing but good things have happened since you've been here. Not true. Well, a lot of great <laughs> things. A lot of good things have happened since I came back. <laughs> you know, not to say that nothing bad has ever happened to Rob Merritt since 2005. Oh, it has. You know, <laughs> but but yes, so many great opportunities. Um, because you said yes. Go back and listen to the Scott Schulte episode. We said yes. We talked about saying yes. That's a cross plug for my own show. Um, so I want to get back to you and and your story here mm-hmm. as I start the timer again to find out exactly where we're at in this episode. Um, I'm trying not to have this too long, and it's so difficult because there is so much storytelling that is worth telling in your life. I have a few directions that I think I'd like to go right now, but I think we only have time for one of them, which means you have to come back. You have to come back. I'll come back anytime you want me. You have to come back for for, uh, episode two, okay? Um, Now, the big thing about your life in storytelling that I'd like to just touch on and probably finish up later is the fact that in your early life, you helped write a book about what happened at Columbine, mm-hmm. the, the first big school shooting in America. Yeah, You worked with one of the guys who went to the school, and I think every time you talk about it, that moment in your life, it's just one of the most interesting things I've ever listened to. And I'd love to, if, if you could speak on the storytelling of something so tragic, 
but also creating something so incredible and profound through words, you know? I, I just, it's hard to wrap my head around covering something like that, especially at such a young age. You know, it goes back to what we were talking about before, about if, you, if you're going to put something out there, why is it important to you? And then how do you make it feel important to other people? You know, when Columbine happened, um, that was in, in... What year was that? 90? 1999. And it was an incredibly... Uh, it really had a huge impact on, on people my age, um, people who were in high school at the time, people who were in college at the time. Um, and, in, and in fact, there were a lot of people who, to this day, can tell you where they were when they heard about it because it was that, oh, yeah. it was that profound to them. And it's, it's weird because now you look at... You know, there are school shootings that happen now that are worse than Columbine, right. and they don't generate as much coverage because it's just become something that we're all, you know, we all live with it. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Um, but at that time, it just shook everyone up so much. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was all of the all of the criticism that was happening toward people who were different, um, people who were into... And this will sound familiar, but people who were into video, you know, violent video games and uh, and music like Marilyn Manson and all that kind of stuff, you know, and then this whole idea mm-hmm. that oh, well, you know, those things, that kind of art, you know, that's causing people to do this, right? And and as someone who I had, you know, I had I played video games all the time. I was a big fan of Nine Inch Nails. I, uh, you know, I, I would watch violent movies. I, I loved. Quentin Tarantino's stuff, yeah. um, and, and and all and that I, stuff remains true. By yeah, and I I I was like, okay, no, you're all saying that that's what causes people to do these school shootings, and I could tell you, I have no desire, and I have never had a desire to do anything like this. Right. So for me, I was like, okay, so all those things that these people are saying, that's a load of crap. Why did this actually happen? Oh, and I, I didn't. I, I had no idea you took a little bit of that bit of, a little bit of that feedback from the public as uh, took it a little bit personally. I did, t- yeah, because it, I felt like it was an attack on me and my friends and uh, and on anybody who was into that kind. You know, those things are a lot actually a lot more mainstream now than they were. Um, but at that right when I was in high school, anime wasn't cool. Yeah, now yeah, it's I mean, really cool. But at, at that time, you know, it was it was something. And I remember them even saying, you know, if there's a kid in your class who is, you know, is kind of, they're they're they kind of hang out away from everyone else, and they're a little different and all that, and and you feel uncomfortable around that person, you need to go to your teacher or to the principal and let them know. And then we'll take that student aside and make sure everything's okay. And I was like, really? Yep. So, so, so you're going to kids take... who are already being ostracized. Yeah. Now, are, now, now the bullies for... get to say, not only are we not going to hang out with you, but we're also going to make everyone think that you're going to shoot up the school. Right. And it was just, I, I just, I got so upset about that. Um, but and I, you worked with someone who was very close to that situation. Yeah. I would love to hear a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so I, I met Brooks. Um, who is Brooks? Brooks Brown was a survivor of that shooting, and he was friends with the two killers, and he was actually the last person to talk to Eric Harris in the parking lot before Eric started doing what he was doing. And so he he was very... Well, you want to talk about storytelling. Brooks was interwoven into the narrative of Columbine in a way that few other people were because he was he was friends with multiple victims he was friends with the killers uh he had had death threats from one of the killers he had tried to turn the killers into police a year before everything had happened and then after you know he was there when it all went down 
and then after it happened, uh, and he came forward and said, look, we tried to warn the police about these guys. The police turned around and claimed he was a suspect in the killings because he was friends with them, and he was immediately ostracized, and it took him two years to clear his name. So mm, you basically yes. have this one guy whose story interweaves all... Th- and, and I remember that uh, when I became friends with Brooks, he said to me one time that he wanted to do a book about what had happened, but he didn't know how. How the hell did you meet him? Uh, online. Um, I, we, we, uh, we started, like, like in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we didn't have social media yet. And so people were mainly posting on message boards, things like that. And, um, and I got connected to Brooks and once and, and I didn't know who he was at first and then at one point he told me who he was and the weird part was I knew exactly who Brooks Brown was mm-hmm. because I had read so much about Columbine at that point and I was like whoa this is weird um, <laughs> I had a job at the time where I was working for uh, construction publications here in Cedar Rapids which is uh, they they make magazines that uh, dealers for construction equipment give out and so I was traveling all over the country reporting on different job sites and I had to go to Denver uh, because I was covering that they were demolishing the old Mile High Stadium and they were building the new football stadium. And so, and Brooks had mentioned, hey, if you're ever going to be in town, let me know. And so I was like, I'm going to be in Denver if you want to like meet up. And so I wound up, uh, and and it was weird because the week I was there happened to be the two-year anniversary of Columbine. So Hmm. I meet Brooks and then a couple days later, Brooks invites me, because I'm still in town, Brooks invites me over to watch the two-year 60-minute special about Columbine that he'd been interviewed for. Hmm. Wow. And I did. And and I remember he was really angry about how that special went and and he just wanted to drive around afterwards. So I'm like driving around Denver with Brooks, this guy that I met three years, three, three days earlier. And he's like, you know, we, so we became friends very quickly and, I, I wrote an article about his working with Michael Moore on Bowling for Columbine. And I wrote an art, you know, I, I wrote an article for, I was working for the newspaper in Marshalltown at this point. I had just left construction publications and started working for the paper there. And Brooks wrote me back after I had written that column. And he said, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of journalists in the last two years about all of this, and you are one of the only ones that's actually told my story the way I tell it, because apparently it was always getting distorted by people. Of course. And, of course um, you're the only one, dude. And and then, like, only a li- not long after that, he emailed me, and he said, so I've really been wanting to tell the story about what happened to me. I, I don't know how to write a book, though. Do you have any interest in working on this with me? And I was like, yeah, I would, I would love to work with you on this. And the more I thought about it, what I was telling you, the, the whole way that he's interwoven through the narrative of Columbine, I was like, if you tell the story of Columbine through what Brooks went through, you know, he's like the only person. I mean, there were, there were books at that time that were written by families of uh, the victims. So, you know, they could tell the story of, uh, of their, their child that had been, that had, you know, what they were like and then what happened that day. But they didn't know anything about the killers. And then there were people that were trying to write about the killers, but they didn't know anything. You know, I mean, a lot of the people that Eric and Dylan killed, they didn't even really know. It was weird. Like, they had this whole hit list, but in the end, they were killing people randomly. So there was, like, not much connection. Um, and yet, but but if you did a story, but if, if Brooks tells the story, Brooks is able to talk about, 
you know, what happened leading up to it, what it was, you know, what was going on with Eric and Dylan, uh, what the victims were like as people. And then that day, his experiences that day, and then the aftermath. I mean, it was a really powerful narrative. And the thing was, though, Brooks was dealing with, obviously, a lot of trauma. I mean, that had been a horrible thing to go through. And his thoughts were really scattered all over the place. And whenever we would sit down to to talk for the book, I would have to map out uh, what it was we were going to cover. And then I would have to go and find interviews he had done with people uh, and and find things he had talked about, and then remind him about that stuff because his head was a jumble, and oh, it, he would. Wow. And then I'd say, "Yeah, you told these these folks about this day that that this happened," and he's like, "Oh, that's right, yes." Uh, and then he, you know, he could tell all of these stories if you gave him prompts, but but he couldn't possibly figure out how to string all that right. together. And so I helped you him had to the do key that to the door in and his then, brain. And then you know, working as a journalist, I knew how to then do research, you know, every time that Brooks would say, then this happened, I figured, well, we could just have the, you know, people could take Brooks's word for it, or I could, as a journalist, research things to prove what he's saying. (laughs) And so, you know, when Brooks Uh talked about the extensive bullying culture that was going on at Columbine, which lots of administrators were like, that wasn't happening, that wasn't true. Well, uh, here's uh, here's the FBI report that was done after Columbine that proves that that was true, that here's all these other students talking about the same thing that Brooks did. Here's all of the, here's, here's what investigators found. Um, when Brooks would say, you know, this thing happened on this date, I would, you know, I'd find documentation showing that it did. Um, and so, so yeah, we worked together on that book for about a year. And, and the weird thing is that uh, actually this year, is the 20th anniversary of the release of that book. And in fact, the publisher has wow. been talking to both of us about they want to put out a new version of it. Because if you see the old book, you know, it's got... That would be incredible. You know, it, it's... I mean, the thing is, that book was... It had everything that we knew up to 2002. Right. And so they they want, they want to do a book that is, you know, updated in terms of its look, and uh, and some additional information. Uh, probably change out our author pictures since I don't have bleach blonde hair anymore and oh, we are in our early 20s you anymore. You aren't, you so. aren't the real Slim Shady anymore? Yeah, I am not the real Slim Shady. And uh, and so, and, and, and Brooks doesn't wear insane clown posse jerseys anymore. But, uh, but if you get our book... Uh, the old one, you'll get to see those lovely things. And so, <laughs> so we'll probably fix that up. The thing is that, and, and Brooks has gone on, I, like, you know, he was kind of a wreck at the time that I worked with him. I mean, now he has, like, his career in the last 20 years has blown up. He has worked for LucasArts. He worked for James Cameron. Um, now he is doing VR work. Uh, he works in the video game industry. Um, so he's done amazing stuff, and he's become a really good writer. Right, and he's told some amazing stories. He really has. He really has. And so, um, and I'm really proud of the fact that I was able to help him at a time when he couldn't do it on his own. That's to wild. tell this story. And I mean, today you're working with a guy who worked on Avatar with yeah. James Cameron. Yeah, but he hadn't at that time. And, and the thing it, that's the funny thing is that now, I mean, Brooks Brooks could tell his own story without any problem at all. Right, but back then he couldn't. And yet we felt like that was a story that people really needed to hear. They needed to hear the other side, uh, a counter to all this stuff about, well, you know, Columbine happened because of these dumb reasons. And it's like, no, it didn't happen because of that. Um, 
you know, I mean, the book is called No Easy Answers. The whole point is there is not a simple solution to this. And the fact that these things have continued to happen for 20 years since then kind of backs and, that up. And they will continue for longer than that, yeah. unfortunately. But, uh, but so, yeah. That was a, thank you for giving me that inside look. I think I think my listeners are, are really going to find that so intriguing. And, and I know that we've, I think we've just quench we've we just made them hu- more hungry for for more of that story because i know that there's so much more um i've heard the entire story from you yeah uh on a car trip we took one time by the way i, I don't know if i said this on the episode or before we started recording but if you need a good partner for a car trip it's rob man <laughs> he has stories and stories and stories and he tells them so wonderfully so one thing i do want to say mm-hmm. before we end this episode that i want to take away is it seems like from what you're telling me, there are two very important kinds of storytelling that you stick to. There is the kind of storytelling of, do people need to hear this? What What is needed out there? That's an outward storytelling. And then there's also an inward storytelling of when not worrying about what people are going to think. I'm making this for me. If I find it funny, then it's good. Um, and going with your instincts instead of what does the world want? What does, excuse me, what does the world need? I haven't really thought about it like that before until today. And I don't know if you can validate that thought at all, but is is that a little bit how you think um, with, without going too long? Cause I, I, we do need to get out of here. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting fusion of the two. Like, like we were saying before, you don't want to be writing things or creating videos or whatever for the sole purpose of, I need more hits what you know what's everybody into i'm gonna follow you know follow the leader on that because then you're just you're pandering you're creating something that isn't true to you you're only doing it because you're trying to hit the largest amount of audience but at the same time you don't want to be that or at least i don't want to be that artist who is like i have this thing in my head and i'm just going to do it and i don't care if no one gets it it's like, I do care if someone gets it. It's right. important to me that whatever it is I'm communicating, whatever story that I'm telling, that I'm I'm getting across something effectively. Yep. And so I feel like, for me as a storyteller, the best thing is when there's a fusion of the two, when it's something that is really, really important to me. It's a story that I really want to tell. Um, and then at the same time, I'm like, okay, so because this is important to me, how do I reach people with it? I don't want to just tell a story that sounds good to me and me alone. It's like, okay, I I want other people to understand this the way that I understand it. Or, you know, I want to take the hook that brought me in that made this seem like an appealing story to me and have that hook work for other people. And I definitely did that with the Columbine book because the questions that I asked Brooks were the questions that... I wondered about, mm-hmm. and then I thought, here's why I find this story incredibly compelling. Uh, I'm now going to do everything I can to make other why. people see too. that. Yeah. yeah, and so so that kind of that has driven everything from my journalism career and the articles I write there to the videos I create now for Nuboco to playwriting. Every time, it's like it's got to be something that I care about. But then how do I make other people understand why I care about this and make them care about it, too, or, or care about these characters or care about this situation? Right. Regardless of what it is, what it, regardless of what story you're telling, if it's fiction, nonfiction. Yeah. You put your heart into it. Um, and Amazing. then And then hopefully other people will understand. And maybe they won't. And that's OK. Sometimes and yeah, and too. they might not. But but I think there I do think there is a difference between. I hope people understand this, but if they don't, it's still important to me that I told this story versus 
I don't care what the audience thinks. It's like, yeah. of course you care what the audience right, thinks. Right. Otherwise, you know, why are you putting it out there? Otherwise you're not human. Rob, thank you so much for this beautiful interview. I, I, I feel bad because I feel like I'm cutting you off. We could, we could, we still have more to talk about, but that's all the time we have today. So, um, as I say to most of my guests, you must come back for a part two, um, at some point, uh, some point, uh, time or other. I would be more than happy to anytime you want to have me. Do you want to hang out for a little bit longer for the uh, for the One Word Stories post show? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So we're gonna head over to the LAS Plus Studios, which is definitely not the same one we're in. We're I think I think you should just hang like a plus on the wall. And suddenly we're in a whole nother place. We're okay. Yeah, we're mentally going to change <laughs> gears. Hit me with that play no, out music. I was gonna say play some uh, music. See, music, music changes it everything. Does. For the record, we are gonna change the music, so the vibe is gonna be a bit different. We'll see you over <laughs> on the LAS Plus exclusive One Word Stories post show. To get that and listen to that, you have to subscribe to LAS Plus for ten dollars a month. You can be a part of the first movement of local creators getting funded for making art that they want to make good art that our community needs for our community by our community something that gets got said a lot today on today's episode um go to laspodcastnetwork.com slash plus to get started i really hope to see you there rob Merritt, how can we find you uh facebook's the easiest way you're you're so good on facebook send him a friend request um and and get to know rob he's he's the best uh I, dude yes I, I just could speak praises about you all day um, yeah. New episodes every Wednesday. Come back next week. Find out who my guest is. It's, it's, well, I don't want to say just in case they have to cancel because that happens sometimes. We're in, <laughs> we're in an age of everybody getting sick. New episodes every Wednesday morning. Be sure to check out Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. And uh, also give us, give me that five-star review. I want it. I need it. I'll see you next week, everybody. Oh, and I got one more question for you before I do leave. And I want you to ask yourself this week. What's your word? Mustache Media. <laughs>